Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best homebrewers and deliver their knowledge straight to yours. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Uh, And on today's episode, we'll be handling your feedback, uh, mostly about the courtesy score thing that we talked about in the last episode. And then in the pub life, we'll be coming through some stuff on the AHA. Something about a brewery refocusing on one of its core brands, a diversity uh, initiative, and some glitter beer because it's time to talk glitter. And then in the library, we've got a little bit to talk about in terms of some differences about mineralization between U.S. and U.K. homebrewers. And then in the brewery, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an event that I just did, as well as a sort of a reply from YCH about the hop crisis situation that was reported in the last episode. And then finally, we're going to the lab because we have results for you. That's right. It's time to find something out. (laughs) Yeah, and let's find out what we're going to find out. Yeah, we're going to find out about our biotransform experiment that you guys may remember that we announced last year. Sorry, we've been a bit remiss, mostly because of, well, life. And then in the lounge, we're going to talk to Brad from BYO about the BYO boot camps and some of the initiatives that Brew Your Own Magazine is putting together. Before we get to your Q&A, deliver a quick tip, something other than beer, and get you on with your day. So it's a busy time. Let's get going. And before we do all that, we're going to hear some words from some of our sponsors. So please stick around and we're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thank you for sticking with us. We're back, and uh, we want to let you know that there is a new episode of The Brew Files out, episode 31, Going for Gold with Nick. 
Drew talks to Nick Corona about some of his award-winning recipes and techniques. Uh, and really, just uh, what sort of magic does he pull in order to win off all of those beautiful gold medals that he's got? So go listen to it. You know, maybe you'll learn something. Maybe I learned something. <laughs> I know I did. Yeah. All right, and don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Habitat for Humanity, helping build houses for people in your town. A great, great charity. Uh, the people help build their own houses. They get help from Habitat from Humanity. And uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. Former President Jimmy Carter, who signed the Homebrew Act, is a big supporter of it, as was my dear mother, who uh, went out there with her hard hat and uh, painted up tool belt to build houses. So please uh, help out some people and uh, remember Jimmy and my mom. All right. And as we almost start every episode around here, you know, because we say something and then you guys say something back to us. Yeah. You know, so it's time for your feedback. And this time, both of our messages come in about the whole notion of the courtesy score you know, that we talked about in the last episode. You know, the whole idea that, you know, should you not go below 13? Should you not go below 17 in the terms of, you know, scoring when you're getting a really bad beer at your table? And we had two different pieces of feedback. First one comes from Fred Johnson from North Carolina, who says the concept of a courtesy score in grading a beer ruins the entire purpose of the scoring sheet. For any beer receiving the courtesy score, one should understand that the real score is less than or equal to the value shown. The brewer of that beer would be a fool to believe the actual score of the beer was actually the score received, and you are doing nothing for the brewer of the poor quality beer by lying. The dick is the one who insists we must not harm the feelings of the brewer by telling the truth. If the real score is in question, the score has to be determined at the judging table. And then a slightly different take on that came in from uh, Matt Score from Leicester in the UK, who said, I was interested to hear your section on courtesy scores. I got a sub-13 score in my first competition, and although I was obviously disappointed, I wasn't offended as I wasn't aware of the existence of a courtesy score. It was certainly deserved. The beer had chlorophenols, and as a new brewer, I had no idea what was wrong with it. The feedback from the BJCP judges was very helpful on the fault and possible causes, so I could improve my process. I think a courtesy score is not a bad idea, but I agree it would be no more than 13. Some beers are problematic, and most brewers would like to improve if that's the case. What do you think, Denny? Yeah, you know, I have I have to admit that the first time I heard about courtesy scores, I was just kind of aghast and thought, oh, no, 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 that's a terrible thing. Uh, really agreed with what Fred was saying. It's like, why are there 50 points if you're not going to use them? On the other hand... If you score a 13, you don't need to really say anything else, you know? Uh, That pretty much says all there is to say about that beer, so I guess I don't see the point in actually having to go lower than that. Well, it's certainly one way to look at it. Uh, To me, I I don't know. I I guess to me the problem is I know that there are some judges out there who they get a really bad beer. You know, they'll be the people who give it a four. And, you know, there's, I just don't think there's any constructive purpose to being that harsh. And so I think that's the real reason the courtesy score exists. You know, it's not to say, you know, oh, hey, look, we're trying to coddle like people with feelings. It's don't be a dick. So, yeah, I'm not necessarily uh, I'm not a fan of the 17 courtesy score. 13 courtesy score is fine by me. And again, I mean, really, even the courtesy score wouldn't be necessary if everybody just followed the rules of don't be a dick. I, I think that uh, I'm leaning more towards Matt's comment, but I 
when I first started judging, I really did agree with Fred. Um, first time I ever judged, and they told us that we couldn't go below 13, I was just aghast. I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I argued. I complained. Can you imagine that from me? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I've gotten used to it through the years, and I really think that, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think it should be any higher than 13, because as I pointed out when we talked about this uh, last time, 13 is at the top of the problematic range of the BJCP uh, score sheet. So, you know, I think if you give a beer a 13, people understand what you're saying, and there's really nothing to be gained by going any lower than that. Uh, to me, I, I don't know. I, mean, I guess to me, the problem is I know that there are some judges out there who they get a really bad beer. You know, they'll be the people who give it a four. And you know, there's, I just don't think there's any constructive purpose to being that harsh. And so I think that's the real reason the courtesy score exists. You know, it's not to say, you know, oh, Hey, look, we're trying to coddle like people's feelings. It's don't be a dick. And, and again, you know, if you give a beer a 13 out of 50, people are getting the idea. So, yeah, I mean, you know, why, why give a four? 13 says it all. Yeah, I'm not necessarily, uh, I'm not a fan of the 17 courtesy score. 13 courtesy score is fine by me. And again, I mean, really, even the courtesy score wouldn't be necessary if everybody just followed the rules of don't be a dick. <laughs> so there yeah. you go. Right, and don't write comments like, damn you, I wanted to have children someday. Yeah, indeed. So, how about we get out of here and go have a beer? Yeah, I think it's about time we headed over to the pub and had something to drink, man. So, uh, I'll see you there. Y-East would like to welcome everyone to the new year with our first release of Private Collection Strains for 2018, inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix. Y-East's Burton IPA blend, West Coast IPA, and Rocky Mountain Lager strains will lend their profiles to an array of malt and bitterness balances, mid-to-low ester formation, and most important, drinkability, for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Y-East has over 30 years of experience producing premium liquid yeast, so you can brew with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals do. These strains will be available January through March at your local homebrew shop. For more information, visit whyyeastlab.com. We've strolled over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA, and we are having a couple beers. Uh, you go first, Drew. All right. I'm having a stimulus from Eagle Rock Brewing Company. Yeah, it, it is their Imperial Stout infused with coffee. It is a nice, mellow, soft beer at uh, 14% alcohol. But it, one of the things that's nice about it is... 14%? Yeah, it's served in a tall boy can. But one of the things that's nice about it is, you know, it's an amazingly smooth beer for something that big, that strong. So, God bless you, Eagle Rock. <laughs> it's uh, 
it's kind of interesting they call a 14% beer stimulus. You would think they would call it like good night or something like that. I think the coffee is the stimulus. Oh, yeah, that would do it. Well, I'm having uh, a Stone Hop Revolver right now. This is uh, one of their series of beers where they use a single hop in the beer, uh, different hop for different batches. And this one features Hercules hops. Uh, Have you had a beer with Hercules yet? Yes, I've actually brewed one with Hercules. Really? Yeah. What I've discovered is I don't like Hercules at all. Guess what? I discovered the same thing. (laughs) I've heard other people say that. It has this kind of like weird herbal floral thing to it. Um, I I don't know, man. Uh, It is just not for me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you on that one. I just... mm. No. Yeah, right, right. Well, I have a I have a six-pack of this stuff to drink. Uh, I tend to drink it uh, when I'm eating something that will cover up the taste. <laughs> Is that a terrible thing to say? No, but it will make me curious as to what you think about the stories that we're about to get into. So, And the very first story is it's AHA Governing Committee time. It's elections! Yeah, and people don't get to vote for you this time, huh? No, nope, no voting for me this time. I'm officially termed out after what 10 11 years so it's time for somebody else to take my seat and for me to look in through the glass windows of the doors on the gc meeting going oh i guess i'll go have a beer (laughs) yeah really man you uh you actually now don't have to show up a day early like i do to have the meeting (laughs) i'll still be there a day early because um but now i get to actually have fun But if you want to actually go read all the statements from all the candidates, and there are a lot of candidates this year because there are a fair number of open slots, you can go find them on homebrewersassociation.org. And then the other big piece of AHA news is it's AHA conference time. HomebrewCon registration is officially open as we're speaking now. It will be open for a week by the time that you guys hear this. And yeah, you can go to homebrewcon.org and actually get your tickets and come see us in Portland. Portland, Oregon. Yeah. If you have never been to a conference before, number one, it's a great event. And number two, this one is in Portland, which makes it even better. So, uh, you know, if, if you're an AHA member, vote in the election, get your tickets to HomebrewCon, come on up here and see us. We'll be there. We're speaking, uh, doing our seminar. We're going to be recording a podcast there. We'll be hanging around drinking. And we might even have a special announcement coming up about something else we're going to be doing. Woohoo! That's my word for today. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I can't make my voice go quite that high, so you'll have to do it. Woo! So, now, one of the things that we've been talking about in the past is, you know, when we first got into craft beer, everybody had sort of their set lineup. You know, here's our core four, core six beers. And then we have a, a seasonal every season, right? And that's how the beer business worked forever and ever and ever. Except for now. Now everybody is chasing the new to the point where beers, beers that are being produced by these companies, these different brands, are coming in and out of existence like in a couple of years. Right? Uh, Firestone Walker, for instance, has already just announced retirements of several of the beers that they only really launched about five or six years ago. And... We've talked about whether or not this is also having an impact on our bigger craft brewers, like, say, for instance, Sam Adams, and they're introducing new things, and Sierra Nevada. And Sierra Nevada is good friends of ours, but they, they've they been releasing a lot of brand new things this year, but 
what I thought was interesting, there's an article talking about how they're about to take a different tack. Yeah, um, they had uh, seen their sales actually slump for the last two years, uh, you know, mid-single digits, not a huge thing. But they had had 35 years of sustained growth. So they were a little bit freaked out at the fact that suddenly they're down. So they've decided that they're going to refocus on their pale ale. And to that I say, right on, good on you, and all those other positive affirmations. Uh, I love Sierra Nevada pale ale. I'm tired of breweries going, oh, we need to freshen up our line. We need to get rid of this beer because it's been around for a while. Look, folks, good is good, and good never goes out of style. So kudos to Sierra Nevada for making people realize how great their pale ale is. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if they can actually punch through the sort of uh, Nuevo-file trend, but you know, I do I do worry about it a little bit. But yeah, I agree with you. It's still a damn fine beer. Yeah, you know, interesting story here. A few years ago at uh, the Great American Beer Festival, Sierra Nevada, for the first time, did not win a medal for its pale ale with the judges saying it was out of style. <laughs> What's really unique is that Sierra Nevada defined that style. Kind of by definition, Sierra Nevada cannot be out of style for a pale ale. So, anyway, that's almost, I, that's almost I, as crazy as Alaska not winning for their smoked porter. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. There wouldn't be a smoke porter without that. So Cool on Sierra Nevada and some other cool people, too. Our Writers Guild, right? Yeah, Denny and I are both members of the North American Guild of Beer Writers, the NAGBW, which I can never remember the right order on that one. Yeah, it took me a long time. I just call it NAGBA. NAGBA. But uh, NAGBA just recently announced that they are launching a diversity grant. Now, what is that, you ask? Well, it is a... It is a grant, and I think it's like $1,000, yeah. to basically uh, go out and encourage people of color and women to write uh, beer articles, and they apply in, and who, who, you know, whoever they choose, they will receive a grant as kind of like a little extra kickback once the uh, story is published on craftbeer.com. Now, if you're interested in this, uh, it's going to be kind of cool. The applications go on until March 30th. And they have a form. We'll include a link to this in the show notes. But you go in, you tell them your basic pitch and who you are and whatnot, and they'll they'll choose a winner out of there, and that person will get a, a little extra boost to sort of you know go and do something interesting. The fun part is it's got to be at least two thousand words in length, which that's a hefty article. Yeah, it is. Guild members will help in mentoring and uh, editing the articles, stuff like that. So you're not in it alone, but. It's a really cool thing. We applaud them for doing it, and we'll uh, put that link up on our website so you can check it out. And now, it's time to get controversial. <laughs> I don't know, man. How controversial can glitter beer be? I know. Have you been paying attention to the internet recently? I, Apparently, pretty damn controversial. You know, I, I didn't think it was controversial because I haven't seen anybody who thinks it's a good idea. Well, except for the brewers who are doing it. I mean, they, th they think it's kind of funny, and I've seen people react positively to it. So the trick is here, you know, after last year, uh, everybody going nutty about haze and getting all grumpy about it, uh, several uh, brewmasters around the country uh, kicked off by Alexander Noel uh, down here in L.A. and Three Weavers, which is a very great brewery, by the way. Uh, they've been adding what is called uh, glitter dust, it's or edible glitter dust, to beers adding them kind of at the last minute in a keg 
so that, uh, yeah, only in the keg. But when the beer pours, it looks like a big, swirly, hazy cloud of shimmery goodness. And I don't know, to me, the biggest, the biggest thing about it is, obviously, the glitter dust has no flavor. Uh, I've, I've used it a couple times, not for beer, but for making uh, shimmery liqueurs and whatnot. It's kind of fun. You can also use it to decorate cakes. But it doesn't have any flavor. But it does have this massive color impact and this massive sort of appearance impact. And if you look at the pictures, and we'll include a link to an article at Munchies about this, I mean, it's, it's pretty dramatic and sort of startling, but really no flavor impact. It's just for the appearance sake. And what I thought was interesting in the run-up this week as we're recording is the week when uh, International Women's Day is happening. There were a lot of people who were kind of crying out that this was some sort of weird sexist marketing ploy. And the truth is, like so far, all of this has been done by, uh, or most of these have been done by women's brewmasters as like a little extra celebration on things. So I kind of thought it was funny. I mean, it's a total gimmick. It's it's way more of a gimmick than Hayes beer is, but still kind of funny to see. Funny, huh? Okay, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to mine. and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. So I'm guessing that if you're keeping your mouth shut, you don't like it. You think it's silly. You think it's stupid. Uh, Man, not like it. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't have any feelings one way or the other on that. I do think it's kind of silly and stupid. But you know, whatever. You <laughs> do what you like, and I'll do the same thing. I know, but come on. It allows it allows somebody to make a beer called Mel's Sparkle Pony. So what? <laughs> I mean, you know, if there was ever an example of a because I can beer, that's it. Uh, well, I still think it's amusing, okay. and I don't think it. I don't think it bothers. It, it shouldn't bother anybody. But I've also been really laughing at people's reactions to it because boys have been a- gathering a reaction. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, it doesn't bother me because it doesn't impact the beer like, say, uh, some of the hazy IPAs are impacted. But I just, I just don't, I don't get it. What can I say? I, you know. It's, it seems ridiculous. All right. Contest to all of our listeners out there. If you go to Homebrew Con this year, make sure that you offer Denny a sip of a sparkly, hazy IPA. <laughs> Let's see how many of these sparkly, hazy IPAs we can get into Denny's hands. You know, um, and a, a sip is fine. I'll, I'll try just about anything. I'm willing to be proven wrong, but uh, we'll see. I just more want to see the aghast look on your face. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and our last little note today is about Duval Mortgott. You know, they're, of course, the people who are probably most famous for making Duval beer. But kind of quietly and strangely, they've grown into sort of a little bit of a beer conglomerate. So just this uh, past week or so, they announced that they had acquired another brewery, Burifico del uh, Gatto, in Italy. But now that brings up to them a total of 10 breweries that they own. So not only do they own themselves, right? They own Brasserie Schuf. They own uh, Deconic. They own Leafman's. They own uh, Bernard, Almagang, Boulevard, Firestone Walker, and Barry Tige in Amsterdam. So that's a really interesting portfolio of breweries. And... I've often said, you know, of course, obviously, obviously, I'm not a huge fan of uh, any of the craft beer sellouts that happen, right? And, you know, and I have, you know, things that I say, oh, I'm ethical. I won't drink this beer. I've gone on and on about this before. But for whatever reason, Morcott always gets a pass from me. And I think it's because 
so far with all of these breweries that they've acquired and brought under their umbrella, they really haven't messed with any of them. And they're still all out there making, you know, really incredible beer. I, I, so, think, I think you can just chalk it up to a single word, which is integrity. There you go. But again, it's sort of a, a stealth beer conglomerate in the making, but a stealth crafty beer conglomerate. I mean, none of these breweries are massive. I, mean, I think Firestone Walker is probably the biggest of them, or maybe it's Boulevard. But kind of kind of cool to see and, and interesting. I mean, hopefully that means we'll see some more of the Italian beer here in the U.S. Yep, there are some great beers from Italy that uh, would be great to see over here. So hopefully that will happen now. So you're ready to finish up your beer and move along? No, I want another beer. You can <laughs> you can go ahead. Okay, you have another beer. I'll take this without you. We're going to head over to the library. At least I am. I don't know what Drew's going to do. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about a couple interesting articles we found. So stick around to hear about that. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. We've moved over here to the library with the stacks of books, and uh, we're going to be talking about some interesting information that we've found. Uh, an article from Murphy and Son about water, water everywhere, and the differences in how uh, British brewers and American brewers look at water and water treatment. And it really kind of looks like British brewers are way more into mineralizing their water to a, a much greater degree than most American brewers, huh? Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, I think we're used to having like, oh, this is how the water table for Burton Bond Trent looks, and this is how this looks and, and everything. And I don't think we ever really stopped to, to think about it. But then the interesting thing in the Murphy and Sons article is they they pop up a table, and I mean, it goes through all the bicarbonate and magnesium. It's actually a really good explanation of water. But... Their big thing is down the down at the bottom. They include uh, a typical water profile for a bitter, for a mild, a porter, and a lager. And the biggest thing about it is the bitters have a much higher sulfate rate than I think most American brewers ever dare to get to. So, like they're they're bitter they're for the bitter their sulfate rate is four hundred parts per million. And I think most American brewers, we start to get a little skeeved out if we're heading up over, say, 200. Or, or more, more like 300, at least for me. You know, 250, 300, I'm kind of going, man, do I really want to do this? Uh, 400 is, though, way, way up there. Right. And so we actually tripped across this article uh, via a forum thread over on the HA forum. And I think the funny part to me was... Yeah, people were talking about it. Of course, you know, we're big fans of Brewing Water by Martin Bruingard. And Martin's little spreadsheet there can help you dial in all sorts of different water profiles. 
And he had a funny reaction to it where he's like, yep, uh, I'm, he says, I'm routinely castigated on British forums, uh, British homebrewing forums, for the modest mineralization that the brewing water profile suggests. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, and to him, it's just a taste thing. And reading that and reading his response made me stop to think that, you know, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's one of those things where uh, some of those British bitters that I have, you know, like the ones that are like, say, Fuller's and whatnot, they do come off very minerally, and I never think about it. And I think that may be a problem with most of the American bitters I've had, where they seem a little flappy. Yeah, well, obviously, <laughs> getting up to 400 parts per million of sulfate is definitely going to make your beer taste a bit on the minerally side. Yeah, it's sort of insane. So, if you're out there and you're brewing your your bitters or your miles or whatnot, go take a look at this article. Uh, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. But we th- we thought it was interesting because... Yeah, it, it pushes those mineral levels a lot higher than I think most of us feel comfortable with. And maybe, I mean, maybe one, it's just a cultural thing. I mean, this is the, the water profiles that Bruin Water suggests and the water profiles I think most of us use are the thing that we're comfortable with because it's what we're used to in the taste wise. But yeah, you go and you look at uh, Britain and they're like, no, 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 do this. So also, by the way, I like the fact that they do the water profile suggestion not by some sort of mythical city water profile, but by the style. Right, which is the way it should be, huh? Yeah, you because know, all those city profiles that you ever study, if you ever studied the BJCP notes, they don't really mean much. <laughs> no, no, they don't. Uh, number one, they change over time. And number two, there's virtually no brewery that uses their water without doing something to it. So knowing what the water in a particular city is really doesn't say a whole lot about the water the beer there is brewed with. Nope, that's true. All right, and so now moving on from water to a time when America was forced to drink water, <laughs> the latest uh, AJ Zymergy Live actually happened this week, and it was uh, with uh, Teresa McCullough, who is the official Smithsonian uh, researcher into the history of beer in America and particularly the rise of craft beer. So she works for the history, the American History Museum, uh, the Smithsonian, and she put on a presentation that was open to AHA members. It was a nice little lunchtime talk here on the West Coast and with a bunch of slides talking about the history of prohibition here in America and its impact both on the beer scene and craft beer. And what I thought was really cool after they got some audio issues sorted out, because there are always audio issues with these sorts of things. What was interesting was her very first statement in it was, I'm going to be controversial and say that prohibition was a good thing for American breweries. That's a very interesting point of view. Uh, what, what was she saying that in regard to? Well, it took a while to get there, but the upshot was basically that if you don't have prohibition, you don't have the American craft beer revolution. If you don't have prohibition, you don't lose a bunch of the breweries that that you had out there. You know all the regional breweries, right? And then you don't have the the mass consolidation that you saw on the market, which then led to sort of the homogenization, which then led to the revolution of I want something that doesn't taste yellow. You know, I think that that's a really, really astute analysis. Yeah, so it was really cool. She also walked through some of the other stuff that uh, that they're working on, including gathering things like you know Charlie Spoon that we talked about before, and. Also really kind of cool, apparently, if you uh, show up and or if you show up to the museum and call Head, uh, you can actually do some digging around in some of the archives and, and take a look at some of the items that they've collected over the years on beer stuff. And, I mean, obviously, they have, like, you know, 
brewery logs and they have other brewery ephemera. They have, you know, menus and everything else. So it's really kind of nifty to see that the Smithsonian is there and actually uh, capable of uh, serving the beer audience now, which of course means I kind of want to go to Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, maybe you'll have a chance, but uh, I kind of feel like staying as far away from Washington, D.C. as possible, although I guess beer would be a reason to go. Well, yeah, and there's also some good breweries around the area. So, yeah. you know, you can you can have some beer and you can go read about some beer. That's right. So, But remember, if you are an HA member, you can actually uh, log into the HA website and go download a recording of this and all the slides so you can listen and catch up. If you're not an AHA member, remember that you can click the AHA link on the website for experimentalbrew.com, join the AHA, and give us a little kickback all the while that you're supporting your home brewing rights and also getting some access to some really great content. Yeah, right. If you're an AHA member and you haven't taken advantage of the Zymergy Live webinars yet, then you are missing out on part of the great benefits of your membership. So check it out. They're easy to find, and I'm pretty sure that you'll find something there that you're really going to dig. Dig it, man. Let's get out of here. Okay. Time to head over to the brewery where we're going to give you a little bit of news from uh, what's going on in the beer world. Stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We've made our way over to the brewery where the gleaming stainless steel is starting to heat up uh, nice and toasty in here today. Drew, you were like just involved in some sort of event down there? Yeah, so one of the charities that the club supports, and our club supports a bunch, and one of them is an organization called foodforward.org. And what's kind of cool about Food Forward is they're a a group dedicated to getting produce into the hands of those without access to a lot of fresh produce, right? So a lot of poor areas don't have really great supermarket access. They're kind of considered uh, in sociological terminology, food deserts because they don't have access to a lot of fresh food, which has a negative health impact. So this organization actually goes around and they do a couple of different efforts. One of which is they have volunteers go around to different people's yards and pick the fruit trees that they have so they can gather that fruit and use that and distribute it. But the other one I thought was kind of cool is LA has an abundance of farmer's markets. Like there are farmer's markets everywhere because well, California, we grow a lot of food here, but now a lot of these farmer's markets, you know, the produce that comes there is very ripe and has a very short lifespan, right? Because it's intended to be kind of like old school, you know, here you go, this freshest thing that you can have not shipped in from Chile. And so Food Forward actually stations volunteers at each of the food markets around the the area. And like I said, there are 
almost 100, I think, in the LA area. And those volunteers, at the end of the day, go around to each of the booths and basically ask for any donations, anything that the farmers don't want to take back. And when they do that, they take that into the organization. And again, that gets distributed. So it's a little bit like part charity, part food bank, and part commercial company, because they're also doing some commercial things to support everything else. Well, one of the really cool things that they did was they asked the club, since we're supporters of theirs, would we be willing to teach a fermentation workshop? And so we did, and we had about 20 people from around the Food Forward world come in and to their nice little warehouse that they've got. And I showed them how to do a brew-in-the-bag no-chill batch that I just did on an induction burner. And I used all Mecha-grade malts. Thank you, Mecha-grade. I made a rye pale ale with cryo hops. So a little bit of a riff on Denny's pale. And then we also taught them how to make a cider. We brought them some fresh cider juice. And we literally just used a hot glue gun to melt the cap and uh, uh, glue an airlock into the top and pitched in some yeast. And sent them all home with a uh, fresh made cider. And then, of course, because it was a homebrewing event, we had to share. So we brought them samples of homebrew, home mead, and home cider. And what I thought was really interesting was from this group of people, we got a lot of questions that I I don't normally get from when I teach a how to brew type class. You know, people were really interested in okay, how could they spin fermentation into other directions. They were concerned about like some of the ecological impacts so things like you know the water that's being used and how do we recycle that or how to what do we do to prevent waste and so that was part of the reason why doing a no-chill batch was extra special and i mean yeah it just turned into a really great little time you know nice quick little afternoon brew day i think we took about three hours to make a small batch of beer and i'm gonna bring that back to them so that they can taste the fruits of our labors so to speak (laughs) Yeah, you know what? We have organizations like that around here, and I would bet that most of you out there have something like that in your town. So check it out. See if there is. And not only support them, but see what you can do to get involved, either by doing a brewing slash fermentation demonstration or just helping them out. Because, you know, it's good for your karma. And we all need a little karmic polish. (laughs) We certainly do, man. Some of us more than others. Uh, now, you remember last episode, we talked about sort of the hop glut and the impact that it was having on, you know, the farmers, the growers, and also what was happening at the brewery side. Well, our sponsors at YCH, you know, because of some of the, the news that was running around, uh, actually put up a response. And you want to tell the people about it? Yeah, basically, uh, YCH just said, uh, you know, maybe some people are having an oversupply of hops and having trouble selling them. That isn't an issue for us. And uh, let me tell you, it's not because YCH is a small organization. They are not seeing a lot of the uh, effects that other people are in terms of canceling contracts and hops sitting in the warehouse. So that, to me, is a very positive sign, not just for them, but maybe for the industry as a whole. huh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, who knows? I mean, the biggest thing, like we talked about the last time, was – Hop farming has typically been boom, bust, boom, bust. And one of the hopes with a company like YCH, you know, which is really a cooperative of the farmers, is that they can get their predictive analytics together so that they don't go boom, bust. And who knows? We hope they've cracked it. Yeah, right. You know, uh, that would be really great because, uh, you know, I, I know some of the people who are growing hops for YCH, and I would hate to see them have bad things happen to them. Indeed. No bad things to hop farmers. Without <laughs> hop farmers, you don't get your hazy IPA. 
or and that will make them that will make America weep or anything else for that matter. Okay, enough of this. Let's get over to the lab and uh, talk about hops again, shall we? Okay. Okay, he says. All righty, stick around. We're going to be right back coming to you from the lab. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. Well, it's been a long time, but we're back here in the lab getting ready to talk about some experimental results uh, for what we called the biotransformation experiment. And you'll hear doubts about that from me eventually. But uh, Drew, run it down. Right. So this was actually sort of, you know, Brulosophy had done a biotransformation thing with a double dry hopped beer. Uh, and the real test was you know, do we see biotransformation when we do a dry hop while the beer is at high croissant versus, you know, at the, you know, in the secondary, like after the, the yeast has fallen. So now the idea is dry hops added during active fermentation, depending upon the yeast strain, and we'll dig into this in a little bit, uh, go through a biotransformation where the hop oils and the terpenoids in there are transformed into slightly different chemicals and it has a, a real impact. Now, in theory, this should happen when we do things at high croissant versus things done at, you know, secondary. So what we had our Igors do was go out there and brew a beer that we called the Transformed Ale, because why not? And they had to match up dry hopping times so that the beers were dry hopped for the exact same period of time and then kept in cold storage so that we could uh, then compare, is there a difference in the hop characters? So we actually had a fair number of responses here. And let me, uh, the, the, the transformed ale recipe is super simple. It's very close to sort of my basic uh, pale ale recipe. Just basically five pounds of two row, four pounds of Maris Otter, and two pounds of Munich. And then single infusion mash with a bunch of Centennial. And then uh, Mosaic as well, because people love Mosaic in these biotransformed beers. And then one ounce of Centennial and one ounce of Mosaic, either dry hopped during Croison or dry hopped after Croison has fallen. And then we let them uh, sit down and do that. We had uh, two, uh, two different groups, one doing uh, YEs 1318 and another using uh, YEs 1056. So let's dig into the numbers. So you remember before we said that we had the option to use 1056 or 1318? Well, only one of our testers actually used uh, 1056. Everybody else used 1318. So that gave us a total of 14 tasting sessions, 96 sessions, or 96 tasters uh, tasting the different beers. Uh, now, if you have 96 
tasters. And again, we're doing our naive grouping. We're still trying to work on a better way to do this. And if you have ideas, let us know. But of those 96 tasters, we would have to have 41 tasters successfully identify the different beer in order to consider the result to be significant, right? To get to a p-value of 0.05. We had 40. We fell one uh, one taster shy in the naive uh, combination of achieving significance. Now, interestingly enough, you know, the other thing is of those nine participants, if you take out Josh, we had eight using 1318. Of the eight, only one of those trials had a significant result. And that was from uh, David Stepp, who had six of nine tasters uh, correctly identified, which is significant. There were three that were real outliers. So that's four of them. The other, the other four were kind of right on that edge of significance as well, which is the reason why we end up getting this sort of edge of significance type of return. So what do you think, Denny? I don't know what to think. <laughs> Actually, uh, obviously the results are pointing towards the fact that uh, dry hopping during fermentation or after fermentation isn't going to make a lot of difference. I see a lot of comments here from people that a fair number of them preferred the beer that was dry hopped post fermentation. Um, you know, I, I guess all the only, the only thing you can draw from it is that depending on your taste, it, it may be different. Um, and and this is this is where I need to mention a couple things. Number oh, wait, hold on. Before, but wait, before yeah. you before you get that, I want to talk about one of the uh, tasters' reactions. Okay, go ahead. Because one of the people who actually successfully identified the beer, the comment was apparently, uh, "These are the same beers. You're effing with me." <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and we've been known to do that, but I don't think that was happening in this experiment. No. So, so let me just point out a couple things here. Uh, number one, this may or may not have been biotransformation. Uh, it turns out that we and most other people have been a little bit loose in what we're terming biotransformation. It only happens with some yeast strains under some conditions. And, uh, you know, we're guessing that maybe 1318 is one of them that does it, but I don't know if that's ever been verified anywhere. The other thing that I want to mention is, at least for me, I have kind of like become a, a non-believer in p-values as really proving anything. And I think Drew would probably agree with that. Um, the only thing that a p-value is going to show you really is whether a concept is or isn't worthy of further study. And I would say that in this one, because it was so darn close, I would not be willing to say that there is no difference, I would go so far as to say what we need to do is dig into this some more. I agree. And, you know, hey, this is this is about the most uh, nice edge type thing that we've seen, unless you want to take and put your significance on the number of trials in terms of, you know, who, you know, whether or not that sways you. But I mean, I remember when Marshall did, you know, one of these uh, Croissant tastings and give it uh, gave it to us at NHC one year. You and I couldn't successfully tell the difference. No, we couldn't. No. So it's interesting. I think I'm I'm wondering how much of this impact that people are seeing is because of, you know, the haze, you know, whether or not the the beers are hazy. And and remember, we removed the visual element from these tests. So 
kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it is, man. I mean, it, it could be a case of confirmation bias. Uh, you know, you see a hazy beer, you go, oh my God, this is going to taste different. Or maybe it could just be some anomaly with our particular experiment, which is why, you know, my conclusion is that I don't have a conclusion other than this needs to be looked at more. Yeah, I think I think this is definitely deserving of a retest to try and see if we can't get something that's even more definitive. Yeah, I, I would like to take a look at the way we set this experiment up, maybe tighten it up some and uh, and run it again, and especially let's let's run down a strain that we know for sure does biotransformation and make sure that that one gets used. Well, there you go. Let's do that. Now that does actually uh, beg the question, guys. You know. What are we doing right here? What are we doing wrong here? Uh, what do you think of the whole biotransformation thing? Do you actually think it has an impact or is it just a visual impact, right? I mean, does it does it affect the taste and flavor sensations or just what your eyes are seeing? Now, if you have those sorts of feedback, remember, you can just reach out to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or you can find us on Facebook. And, you know, we'd like to know what it is that you think that we should be doing to test this again or... If we're not testing this again, what else should we be testing? <laughs> oh, so many, so many things. Yep. All right. On to the lounge. On to the lounge. We're going to get out of the lab, walk over to the lounge, and uh, listen to a little bit of an interview that Drew did on a recent trip to San Diego. So stick around. We'll be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaca is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. We're over here lounging in the lounge. And uh, recently, Drew took a trip down to San Diego to the BYO boot camp that was being held there and had a chance to talk to Brew Your Own editor, publisher, slash all-around nice guy, Brad Ring, about it. Yeah, so if you haven't been paying attention, Brew Your Own has been doing these annual boot camps. Last year, they did two. This year, they only did one, you know, like in places like Indianapolis. Uh, this this time, apparently, they quite smartly decided to do one in February, in San Diego. I can't imagine why. <laughs> because they live in the Northeast. Yeah, they live in Vermont. So, what's kind of cool about this concept is, kind of imagine uh, a two-day short program where you sit in one classroom and talk with one person for the entire day. So, you can take, for instance, a barrel class with Michael Tonsmere. You, uh, you can listen to Mitch Steele talk about hopping techniques and different ways to dry hop and all that sort of stuff. And what's different than, say, like the HA con uh, conference is, one, it's much smaller. And two, 
you are literally in the same subject for the entire day. So you can do like a brewing demonstration with Gordon Strong as he's talking about advanced mashing techniques. You can sit and watch you know, uh, Brad Smith walk you through recipe formulation for the entire day. So it's a very in-depth dive. And it's kind of cool. And uh, I got a chance to kind of visit and pop my head in and take a look around because Intrepid Reporter requires reporting, right? I did this work just for you people. <laughs> what a sacrifice he made for you guys. I know, right? So I, during the event, while everybody else was sitting in one of the classrooms uh, listening to things and just a little bit after lunch, I sat down with Brad to actually to talk through, you know, exactly what the BYO boot camps were about, how they came about, and uh, whether or not they're coming back. And spoiler warning, they are. So get ready. Let's listen to Brad. Okay, well, hey, I'm down here in sunny San Diego. I've been sitting around uh, jumping between a couple of, uh, you know, beery topic classes because I'm here at the Brew Your Own Magazine's boot camp here in San Diego, 2018. And I am now sitting across the way from Brad. Brad, say hi to everybody. How you doing, Drew? And uh, Brad, let's get the 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 usual rigmarole out of the way. Sure. What do you do? So I am the uh, the publisher of Brew Your Own Magazine. I've owned BYO since 1999, and uh, based out of beautiful Manchester Center, Vermont, which is not experiencing the San Diego weather that we're enjoying right now. <laughs> no, I was going to say, yeah, it, it's funny. The guy who lives in New England planning a February event in San Diego. I can't imagine why. Yeah, just an oddity of uh, weather circumstances. Yeah, as I think we're somewhere in the high 70s right now. Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, so a nice pleasant day here in San Diego. And we're here, uh, you know, kind of a small hotel. And how many people do we have here? How many homebrewers? So we've got uh, uh, each day a different group comes in. Mm -hmm. uh, some folks have come for both days, mm -hmm. uh, but we're, we've got about 225 people, which is kind of what we're maxed out here. Mm -hmm. um, and each class is designed to have a maximum of just 35 people in it. We want a really small class immersive learning experience um and we're appropriate hands-on so we do brewing demos and we've got a lot of uh brewing equipment in there obviously mm -hmm. since we're inside it's all electric <laughs> go figure well and i was gonna say so i am what we have five topics or six uh no right now we've got uh, eight different classes oh, going well i think there's five going on today right no no there's eight uh oh. eight each day um so we've got uh I think because you haven't gone off the main floor, there's there's some going uh, upstairs and downstairs as well. So, well, and we have everything going from you know sort of basic all grain with uh, John Blickman and John Palmer walking people through the mechanics of mashing. You, know, you got uh, Gordon Strong doing his advanced class. We have uh, Mitch Steele doing all, all about dry hop or all about hopping at the homebrew level and also things that he's done at the pro level. I think while I was in there, he was uh, talking about going and doing hop sampling up at Yakima and having great fun and also reminiscing about the sports center where everybody goes after hop sampling. And, the I mean, best pork chop I have ever had. Anything hoppy about the pork chop? Or just a great no, pork chop? it was just an unbelievable pork chop. <laughs> I love that place. <laughs> it is the place to be during hop season. Now, and you said, as you said, 30, uh, 35 people and everybody's paying, uh, paying to be here and, and getting a chance to, to really do this. Now, I think one of the things that's different is at least for me, when I'm used to thinking about, you know, hey, going doing beer seminars and whatnot, you know, there's that sort of almost bog standard idea of a 45 to 55 minute class. Mm -hmm. But I mean, here we're at, you know, this is an eight hour setup, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the whole idea behind this was let's really drill deep 
on a topic and give folks a chance to learn from you know a really well-known, respected expert like a, a Mitch Steele uh, about hopping. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only just sit through PowerPoints uh, for 45 minutes at a time and move on to the next seminar, but actually spend a full day with him um, and, and brew some beer um, and, and really learn in a hands-on way. So he, he's brought in uh, brewer's cuts of uh, hop bales mm-hmm. and uh, going to walk through people, uh, you know, how to, how to do the proper sort of hop rubbing and, and, and really what he takes from his pro uh, experience and how to apply it on the, on the homebrew side. Well, and then I know when I was in the room with Blickman and Palmer, they've got like three different brewing rigs going and, it, you know, it's kind of, kind of cool to see, but just kind of stepping back, how, uh, this is boot camp, or beer, uh, beer boot camp number what for you guys? Uh, four. So this is fourth. the fourth time. Yeah. And I think what last year you had done two, right? Yeah. So we, uh, the, the first, uh, we did, we did one, uh, two years ago and then two last year. And then, then we decided to, uh, uh, in, in part because, uh, you know, getting all of these guys, uh, in, a room. in one, one room, uh, more than once a year is sometimes tough logistically. So, uh, so we're going to scale it back to just once a year and we're going to keep moving it around the country. We've, uh, had one in New England. Uh, we had Indianapolis uh, November, and, and then we've been in California twice, once up in Sonoma County and now down in San Diego. And so we'll keep moving around. My guess is probably uh, for next year, it probably is going to be closer to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think uh, probably about the same time frame? Uh, we'll probably keep it, keep it the first quarter. Yeah. Okay. Well, and so what actually, you know, I mean, you said you've had Brion Magazine since 99. Mm-hmm. What caused you to decide that the right thing to do now is to go run a, a boot camp event? Well, um, actually, the, the, the original idea for this came out of, we also have a home winemaking yep. magazine called Winemaker, and we've done events with them. We, we do sort of a wine version of Homebrew Con. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started doing about maybe five years ago, the day before the conference and the day after the conference, these boot camps. And they really uh, seemed to fill a need with how people were... Uh, wanting to learn in a hands-on way. And, and it was a neat chance to take what we do in the magazine and bring it to life. Um, and I felt like we could do the same thing and do it really well on the, the beer side and bring together a lot of our columnists and writers as well as uh, you know, other experts that we uh, rely on for in different ways, technical you know, reviews and things like that, guys like Mitch Steele. And, uh, you know, and have homebrewers have a really neat experience, uh, not only being around them while everyone's brewing, but, but actually learning from them. And then, uh, so we got two years ago, we started this, now we're done. Have you guys had to make any adjustments over time or do you think? Yeah, I mean, each, each, each time. And a lot of it's based on the, uh, evaluation and the feedback that we get, uh, back from, uh, attendees each time. We've added uh, more of a lunch program. So mm-hmm. uh, today we, we had uh, Peter Zine from uh, Ale Smith uh, talk. Tomorrow we're going to have all of our columnists up on stage fielding audience questions, which is always fun. Uh, we've had Ashton Lewis, who is our Mr. Wizard, mm-hmm. do a live Mr. Wizard session uh, during one of the lunch programs. So each, each time we, we, uh, you know, we listen to folks and, and see what worked, what didn't, and, and keep tweaking it. And uh, it seems like it it, it runs smoother and smoother each uh, each time, and uh, attendees really seem to get a lot out of it. Well, and so you said 225 over the course of two days or thereabouts. 
Uh, yeah, each each day that that's that's how many people. are Oh, okay, two, yeah. two twenty. Uh, how, how many people are repeating doing? Uh, about sixty percent are uh, are doing the two days. Well, because I think one of the other unique things is now. Obviously, I'm I'm playing around being different because I'm yeah. I'm tourist man. Sure, but I mean the way it's working is uh, the attendees they sign up for a particular class, like uh, and just and, one a day. Right. So if you if you're signing on to come to boot camp, yeah, you sign up to go to Mitch's hopping class and. That's where you are for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm skipping around because I'm weird. But um, and do you ever get people pushing back at that? Like in terms of like I, I want to be able to do more. Yeah, or? I mean, there's been some some folks. Uh, I'd say it's probably uh, you know, some some people would rather do maybe a, a two or three hour session. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found is the amount of material that some of the, some of our speakers especially want to cover. And especially if you're pulling in brewing demos and, uh, going through different, uh, you know, brewing techniques, um, you know, on a, on a system, it's tough to turn over a room when you've Mm -hmm. got all those moving pieces. And, um, and there's, at the end of the day, we feel like, uh, the full day immersion is, is, is definitely the the best way to go. And I will, I will say, I think one of the other, Interesting things I noticed was uh, I'm used to the idea that, you know, you go to a beer event, like say homebrew con and whatnot, and there's beer everywhere. And uh, I was really shocked. I, uh, I, as I was walking around this morning into the different seminars, I only Mitch had poured beer. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, some, it's some, some pour more than others, but, uh, uh, actually I, I say this, a lot of, a lot of the beer that's being poured is, uh, doctored in some way. Um, you know, spiked with uh, different beer flaws or, or things right. like that. So, yeah, I mean, we will have at the end of each day, we, we have a, a beer reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll invite wherever we are, in this case, San Diego County uh, breweries to come in and pour. So did you guys have trouble finding uh, breweries here in San Diego to pour? I mean, I know it's hard to <laughs> it find was, a it was, it, Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was <laughs> tough. Um, and, and so that's a nice way to put a spotlight and give a little bit of a local flavor uh, where we're going and, usually pull some uh, local speakers in as well uh, mm-hmm. to, to lead some of these classes. So, yeah, it's it's not quite the uh, – there's no equivalent of club night here. Yeah. Um, uh, and then usually uh, we, we let – we try to have it in a very beer-centric uh, location mm-hmm. wherever we go. Um, so in the case of San Diego, obviously we release folks to uh, explore the big city uh, mm-hmm. around 6 o'clock every night. So. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I think we are within baseball throwing distance of the original Ballast Point area. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's just just through the woods there, yeah. and and the old homebrew mart. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, and we are also right down the block from where HomebrewCon was a couple of years ago, the town and country. Yep, yeah. to the town and country. So, and we're I, in a similar place that is a time capsule of uh, hospitality. It, it, I feel like I'm uh, in the Ron Burgundy movie. It's it's stuck in 1978 at best. Time capsule, yeah, I, with a I tiki think, theme. Yeah, I, th- I think time capsule <laughs> is a very uh, a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> but it, yeah, we are, uh, hotel circle is retro. interesting. Yeah. Retro, yes, uh, uh, hotel circle is definitely an interesting area in San Diego. So we think next year we're going to be on the East Coast, sometime around the uh, same period of time. Hopefully, someplace warm, unless you like to warmer. Yeah, <laughs> not not San Diego warm, but uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm guessing we're not going to see a boot camp in uh, in in Vermont anytime soon. Uh, well, we had our very first one in November, and yeah, luckily no snow was on the ground at that point. Uh, and 
yeah, but it was fun. We're from Vermont, and it was fun showing off, uh, you know, Vermont as a destination. So a lot of people had not been to, uh, they had had plenty of hazy IPAs, but not at the source. So. <laughs> The, the easy IPA from, and now everybody has a reason to know Vermont or blame Vermont potentially. That's right. That's right. Now, like we said earlier, you know, there's a lot of beer brewing going on. I saw a lot of uh, buckets of grain and and whatnot. So, I mean, obviously, we're here at a hotel. What happens to that uh, to that beer at the end of the day? Is that uh, a lot of times they'll uh, they'll send folks on their way with a carboy uh, ready to pitch when they get they get home or. Uh, it depends. Uh, sometimes some of the batches of beer are uh, really not great batches of beer. Um, they were more done as demonstration than, uh, you know, thinking about the final product. Although when we were in uh, Vermont, um, the class that Mitch Steele is teaching on advanced hopping, we had uh, Sean Lawson from Lawson's Finest Liquids, mm-hmm. and he did a homebrew batch of uh, a Sip of Sunshine. And uh, that those kegs somehow made it back to uh, the brewer own offices. Go figure. Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't imagine why that would have so happened. So we, 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 we certainly try to put it to use if it's uh, usable stuff. <laughs> now, has, has there been any topic that you've wanted to cover one of these that you haven't, that you haven't figured out what to do? Or? Uh, I think probably, you know, we kegging, I think, is kegging and, and, and draft systems is, is probably one that uh, – I'd like to add to the mix at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, we're, we're kind of hitting all the, uh, all the main ones that I think uh, play out well in this sort of uh, a structure. Well, I was going to say, if you, if you have the kind of people who are willing to you know, pay down the sort of cash that you know, the, the event costs and then also to stick in a room or two for eight hours, you know, I, yeah, I think you go beyond the, you know, here's how you brew. You sure. Know, you go, sure. you know, here's extract. Yeah, you know. I mean, it tends, we, we do have some, uh, you know, folks that are getting into the hobby in the early days, but for the most part, it's it's folks that are uh, intermediate to advanced. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I thought it was great while I was walking around, you know, saw a bunch of the classes with a bunch of different women in them as well, which, yep. Yep. you know, it breaks the stereotype. That was, that was interesting to see. But then I think the other one that's interesting is so okay we got all the homebrew classes that are that are happening, and downstairs there is the going pro uh, section. Yeah. Now that's the only one that's actually both days, right? Yeah. You know, so that like, one, like yeah, and that was and days. actually that was uh, that was a good example of feedback from uh, attendees because that started as uh, a one day class, mm-hmm. um, and it, the attendees that were going to that really wanted more and and Steve Parks uh, from the American Brewers Guild who is teaching that class um, has no problem filling an extra day or an extra week uh, with the material that he can talk about. So he's only been professionally brewing for 30 some odd years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and obviously with his uh, main day job uh, with the American Brewers Guild, he's, he's very good at breaking it down and, you know, understanding, uh, you know, the folks that are wanting to make that jump from hobby to pro. And uh, so that class is always uh, filled up. Actually, one of the uh, one of the first ones to fill up usually mm-hmm. each time we roll this out. Yeah. I, I, when I walked in, I, I basically I looked. Is there a free chair? Is there a free chair? No, I'm standing in the corner, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. So, uh, but that that was an example, and and so we just turned that into a, a two day, and uh, everyone seems to be happy with how that goes. Well, 
and I've been interested in seeing some of the like the little lessons. I mean, obviously, no, I'm not getting the full immersion experience because I am dancing around. Yeah. But even even walking in and out of the the classes, getting some interesting lessons. Like uh, with Steve, I think one of his main points that he was making early on was that you, when you're opening a brewery, don't think about the beer. You have to think about the fact that you're building a brand. Mm-hmm. And that, and and he said that that's a big problem. A lot of people just think about the beer and they don't think about the fact they have to build a brand. Or walking in and and hearing uh, uh, John Blickman and John Palmer sit there and talk about you know sort of uh, different efficiency levels for different sorts of rigs, you know, mm-hmm. as they're showing off some of the Blickman equipment that they had. Yeah, yeah. Well, like like in that class, uh, um, they wanted to expose everyone just getting into all grain about you know some of the different options. So they've got a brew in the bag setup, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a little teepee frame stand for the, yeah, for the pulley yeah, that was, the, that was, uh, for the pulley. So, um, yeah, so they walked through the different, different options that people might consider that, uh, um, you know, here's a chance to see it in person, uh, you know, versus maybe reading about it in a magazine or, mm-hmm. or book. So, well, and the other thing I think that's interesting about the eight hour format, as opposed to, you know, sort of your 45, 55 minute uh, format is there is a lot more willingness from the participants to ask questions during this mm-hmm. period because uh, it feels like there's more time, there's more, more room for the subject to breathe. And, and yeah, and more, more opportunity to, uh, to have that sort of casual exchange. They don't, the speakers don't have to crank through the 45 minutes uh, that they timed their PowerPoint out out. And uh, when people time their PowerPoint. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. I mean, the, I'd say one of the, one of the top, uh, positives as far as people ranking uh what they like most about the experience is the chance to interact in a in a much more uh casual low-key way you know with with some of these uh folks that uh you know they they read their articles Mm -hmm. or they drink their beer or or what have you and here's a chance to actually learn from these guys and and have an actual conversation instead of maybe be sitting in in the back of a room listening to a a powerpoint Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll say this in uh, one of the most interesting feelings I've gotten out of uh, today so far is now I've been around homebrewing since 99. Mm-hmm. And my very first uh, AHA, well, NHC at the time, now HomebrewCon, yep. was in LA. It mm-hmm. was because, uh, hey, go figure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the one in my neck of the woods. And I helped, I helped organize that. And I think that one at the time had, had set a high watermark for attendance. And it was just under 500. Mm-hmm. It was like 480 or something. Sure. And now you go to HomebrewCon and HomebrewCon's, you know, 2,000 to 3,000, mm-hmm. depending upon where, where it's at. And in a lot of ways, I mean, that's very cool just for the, the spectacle and the size of it and also the amount of stuff there is to do sure. there. But sure. one of the things I think has been lost in that shuffle or in, the, in that change is that sense of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so walking around here today, one of the, one of the feelings I'm reminded about is that same sort of feeling that, that HomebrewCon had when it was much smaller. Sure. Yeah. It's uh yeah. And that, and that's uh, we, we saw that uh, chance to kind of fill, fill that need. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly um, yeah, I started homebrewing in uh, 1991 actually. And, uh, yeah, the early days were, were a smaller, uh, you know, National Homebrew Conference was a, a much smaller deal. And mm-hmm. uh, um, this, I think, you know, goes, goes back and gives people a chance to, uh, you know, to have those conversations and uh, not be 
you know, in a, in a large room mm-hmm. all the time. So, uh, so that's, that's been, uh, some nice feedback as well that, that we actually get from, uh, speakers like Gordon Strong and, and others that, that they're enjoying mm-hmm. the give and take that, uh, this experience gives them. Well, they definitely, you know, speaking as somebody who's done speaking at, at HomebrewCon, like one of the things that it definitely seems is like when you're speaking in front of a room of say 500, it's a far different attitude and a far different sort of level of interactivity sure. than it is when you've got 35 people. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's why we capped it the way we did. And, yeah. and also, especially with, you know, brew, brewing demos, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you, you, you can only fit so many people around a brew pot. <laughs> you want to want to be able to have everyone get a get at least a uh, a view of the uh, stainless at some point. Yeah. Well, and I will I will also say I think if you gave me a if you maybe or I will also say if you asked me which was more intimidating to go speak in front of five hundred people or a thousand people or thirty five people, I I think I would have to admit the thirty five people is more intimidating. Yeah, because you 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 very closely see everybody's reaction at that level. Well, and, and it's, and, and I give our, our speakers a lot of credit for tackling not only the, the smaller format, but also the length. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you've, you and Denny have, have worked on books. That's much different than working on the articles that you've written. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a different beast. So preparing PowerPoints and figuring where you're going to do your hands-on demonstrations, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work. Obviously, this is the event. There's still things to do. You've still got, you know, uh, things to corral because no event happens without corralling. Uh, you know, beers to deliver, brewery rigs to make sure they're operational. Is there anything else that the listeners should know about uh, the boot camp or about BYO itself? The, you know, things that you, that you want to have out there for folks to talk about. Sure. Um, no, I, I just would encourage uh, if, if you haven't come to one of our boot camps yet, uh, definitely Take a look. Uh, our, our next one won't be announced for probably a, a few months down the line, um, but it would be great to have you join us. We're actually also going to do, uh, in November, uh, our very first NanoCon. Uh, so that's going to be towards, uh, obviously, the smallest scale pro brewer ranks, and that's going to be in Burlington, Vermont, uh, in the first weekend in November. And hopefully no snow. Although No snow, but... There's a good chance. <laughs> in, in Burlington, there's always a chance of snow, even if it's July. That's right. All right. Well, I, uh, I think it's I think it's time for us to wander back and go see what there is to be seen. I understand uh, Michael Tonsmeyer has been moved away from certain other speakers so he can go destroy barrels. Yeah, and, yeah. That actually that was another learning experience from earlier ones. When <laughs> he starts getting out mallets to destroy an oak barrel, uh, sometimes the noise seeps through those air walls. So uh, we've put him on his own level. This. Uh, this time, so he's uh, a full story removed from any other uh, speaker. Just like a just like an infectious bacteria or virus, Mike has been isolated. That's right. That's right. That's right. You want your sour beer program uh, put <laughs> off to the side somewhere. So we put Michael in his own uh, own level, and it's actually really fun to see. Uh, they'll they'll take it take out the uh, take apart the barrel and then put it back together again. So. Awesome. Well, hey, Brad, thank you so much for taking the you time bet. out of your busy day. I know it's, this is going to be a nice long weekend, and but like like we said, you're in a beautiful retro time capsule of San Diego on a, on a, on a wonderful, not quite spring day. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks, man. Take care. Wow, man, that sounds like a really, really cool event. Yeah, it's it's definitely different, and I think kind of just an interesting way to try and approach the brew learning 
Because I do think that one of the things that you can't get into, like when we're doing, say, one of our 45 to 55 minute talks, uh, you know, let's say at the AHA HomebrewCon, is we can't actually get into doing demonstrations of the brewing itself. But, you know, hey, I think I think it's a worthwhile effort if you if you have the time and the money. So I don't know where the next one's going to be, but pay attention. And we'll make sure to include links when when that one comes up uh, so that you can uh, get yourself involved. I mean, after all, it's kind of a cool day to spend time with John Blickman and John Palmer and Brad Smith and Mitch Steele. Why not? Yeah, it's better than spending the day with us, huh? I don't know. I spend every day with myself. I'm bored <laughs> myself. Oh, you lucky guy. Okay, we're going to get out of here, and we're going to get to the wrap-up portion of the show where we do some uh, Q&A, a quick tip, and something other than beer, and let you get on with your day. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Da, 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 da. It's time <laughs> for questions. <laughs> maybe, or maybe it should be time for answers. Who knows? We'll find out. That's right, man. Uh, uh, you, we- you were on Jeopardy. You should know that uh, you have to like phrase your answer in the form of a question. What is? I don't care. <laughs> there you go. Okay, our first question today comes in from Steve Burnett via Facebook, and Drew's going to handle this one. Steve says, I'm trying my hand for the third time at a cream ale because the first two were not up to my standards and was looking at adding dextrose to this batch. I have not done this in the past, but have seen a lot about how this would help dry out the final product. My main concern is trying to stay in guidelines and the alcohol boost I'll get from the added sugar. Any thoughts or suggestions on this? Well, so I I spent a little bit of time talking with Steve because, of course, you know, cream ale is my jam. And dug in a little bit further, and it turns out that Steve had reported back that he was fermenting in his primary at 70 to 72 with USO5, and it produced a peach ester, which, of course, USO5 will. And so the advice to, to Steve is that, yeah, 70 to 72 is way too warm to go and ferment a cream ale at. You need to drive that bad boy down into, say, the high 50s, low 60s, and ferment there. That will that will actually kind of pull back that sweetness. Now remember, because part of the problem here is not only does a peach ester you know teach your brain to think something sweet because of our acculturation to that flavor, right? We think fruit sweet. Corn also triggers that same sweet sensation. So you got two things going on there: one ingredient and one um, you know sort of fermentation byproduct. They're both telling your brain think sweet. So big advice there is. You only want one of those. That's the corn. You need that corn flavor in there for a cream ale. Right. So drive this thing down, get it, get it into the mid fifties or the high fifties and let it ferment there. And I think you'll be much, much happier and you don't need the sugar to dry things out. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I'll just say right now that the uh, peach you got from the USO five was not because of the temperature. Cause I ferment USO five when I used it 10 degrees lower and I still got it. Uh, it's just in that yeast. People will tell you it's clean, 
But I guarantee you, once you taste that peach, you will never be able to untaste it. Right. But I think, I think fermenting it warm enhances oh, yeah. the peach ester. I mean, it makes it more pronounced. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it does or not, because I've never tried it, but I would say that that is definitely the wrong yeast for a cream ale. Yep. So there you go. But the big advice is at least go, you know, much colder with your ferment. Yeah. You know, I think you'll be happier. You know, Steve, I would say also, if you want to stick with dry yeast, try 3470. It's a lager yeast, but it can ferment at, uh, at higher temperatures and it stays really clean. So give that a shot and you might be a lot happier with it. And I think that's the classic Weisterfahn yeast. Yes, it is. There you go. It's a, it is a classic lager strain, almost probably the most used lager strain in the world. Right. So if, if hundreds of others brewers love it, you might too. And our next question comes from Brian Brickle of Lutz, Florida. He says, love the podcast and sorry, Drew, really love the ukulele. All right, that's it. This question's out of here. A man with incredibly good taste. Mm-hmm. This question is probably for Denny, definitely after the ukulele comment. I am a longtime user of ProMash and have been waiting for some kind of update in the last few years. Homebrewers have updated some of the files themselves and offered them to users for free on different forums. These make me a little nervous. I was wondering if you could somehow research and find out if ProMash is now unsupported, update it yourself, or there might be an update in the future. My research ended with the Sausalito Brewing Company for some reason. Take it. Okay. I would say, yes, give up on ProMash ever being updated by the author. Jeff Donovan wrote it as kind of a side project many, many years ago, and uh, Life happened to him, and he decided that he couldn't support it any longer. At, uh, he had other things to deal with, and it just wasn't worth his while. Uh, it is still a great program. It is still the one that I use for doing all of my beer calculation stuff. When you say update, I'm not quite sure exactly what you mean by that, Brian. Uh if you mean the functions of the program, the way it looks, the interface, that kind of stuff, no, it ain't going to happen, man. Um, but if you mean the databases of the ingredients and stuff like that, well, that's easy. Just do it yourself like I've been doing. Every time I use a new ingredient that isn't in the ProMash databases, I just put it in, you know? I put in the mecha-grade malts. I put in the D240 candy syrup. It's easy to do because your suppliers will give you pretty much all the info that you need, and you don't need to fill in every single one of those boxes. I mean, you know, you really don't care what the different extract potential calculations are and stuff like that. All you care about is what you're going to get out of it, and that's easy enough to add yourself. So I would say if you're a lover of ProMash like I am, keep using it and just do it yourself. Right. And of course, you know, you are going to start to run into problems as you upgrade into different OSs, which is another problem. And by the way, the reason why you, uh, your research ended at Sausalito Brewing Company is that was the, the kind of the company name that Jeffrey had for uh, the ProMash product. So there you go. So you, you ran into the right place. You just ran into a brick wall of uh, nobody's home. Yeah. You know what? I've heard about people having problems with it on different operating systems. I'm running on Windows 10 and there's no problem. Well, I think the big problem is going to be at some point Windows is going to enforce 64 uh, bit only and ProMash is still a 32 bit program. So, yeah, well, uh, right now, right now it's running in a compatibility mode. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know if that will happen or not. Uh, I'm not about to uh, try and second guess Microsoft. Okay, your turn. Grant Sellers says, 
I tried my hand at the cider after listening to the cider podcast. I ended up catching a bug. I assume he means the cider did. So now I'm treating this as an experiment. I've tasted the cider as late as last week, and it seems fine. The flavor is what it should be. pH came in at 3.73 so far. So what do I do now? In other words, how long do I let it run? Is it safe to bottle now? It's just sitting on my floor in the finished basement, and it isn't really in an O2-free environment, mostly because I'm pulling a Denny, right on, and have been lazy with it. Below, I've attached a picture of what I'm working with bug-wise. I don't know what it is, but it looks and tastes clean. That's very interesting. So, uh, okay, before we get into the next part of uh, Grant's question, what do you think about the first part? Uh, It sounds like he's he's ready to bottle. So, I mean, if if the the cider isn't doing anything right now and it's not moving anywhere, your gravity is not changing, you have a fairly stable pH, uh, 3.7 is a little higher than is ideal. Uh, you could, if you wanted to, hit it with some sulfite. You're just going to have have to hit it with a lot. Uh, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. I would just go straight into the bottles. You're probably fine and done. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused when he said that uh, he's got some sort of bug, but it tastes fine. I, I those two things kind of seem at, at odds to me. I, I suspect he said I ended up catching a bug as, and I ended up being enthusiastic about this. Oh, okay, maybe that's it. Uh, I thought that uh, he was talking about that the cider had uh, had had something happen to it. Okay, enough enough of that conjecture. Here's the second part of Grant's question: When fermenting in your corny kegs, where do you place your probe? Oh man, I'm not even gonna go there. I have an Inkbird ITC 310T. I'm fermenting a New England IPA and sitting at day nine. I checked on it today in my makeshift fermentation chamber, which is an old mini-fridge, which works great. The temp is set to 66, but the probe was reading 65 and had the heat wrap going, which I wrap around the corny keg. I randomly placed my hand on the keg, and it was unusually warm. When I investigated with my Thermoworks thermometer, it was reading 80 degrees in the beer. Whoa! I started moving the Inkbird probe around the keg and got anywhere from 67 to 74. Interesting. I even pulled a sample with my thief from the middle of the beer straight down, and it was sitting at 72. After I checked both thermometers' calibration in a proper ice bath, both are reading an accurate 32 degrees, leading me to believe that the wort honestly was different temperatures throughout the beer. So is keeping the probe dead center in the wort best, doesn't seem like it, or would it be better to tape it to the side with some sort of insulated barrier? Due to this high temp swing, should I expect off flavors? Fermentation has been finished for a while, but would this still cause issues? Take it, buddy. There's an old saying that the only man who knows that his temperature is the man with one thermometer. <laughs> yeah. You have just encountered this phenomenon of having two, th- two thermometers. And also realizing that as you move your probes around, you'll find different things. So yeah, here's the thing. Your liquid is not going to be at a uniform uh, temperature because you have no convection going on. It will slowly mix. But if you have an active heat wrap going, uh, you're going to have parts of your beer that are going to be hotter and parts of your beer that are going to be colder. And hopefully eventually they'll sink and fall and rise and all that sort of fun stuff. But yeah, your convection in a non-fermenting wort is going to be relatively lousy. So having said that, since you're done with fermentation, I think you're going to be fine. Right. Now, if in the future, yeah, if you're talking about, hey, you know, where's the best place to measure from? Is it from the side? Is it from the, 
Is it from the uh, you know the middle of the wart? I think objectively the best place is the middle of the wart, but I don't like sticking probes into into my beer because that's just another way I'm going to screw up and infect my beer. And I typically just leave the probes on the side. But I also don't engage in using heat wraps because I live in Southern California. I don't need heat wraps. So, <laughs> and I, you know, um, you know I, I do heat my fermentation chamber because I don't live in Southern California. But to tell you the truth, I just don't think a heat wrap is the way to go about it. I put a, a reptile heater bulb in the chest freezer, and which heats up the entire environment, not just the fermenter. For some reason, I feel like that just provides a, a more gentle, even heat. Well, I definitely think it provides a more gentle heat. I mean, if you think about what these firm wraps are, I mean, they're reptile heaters, right? They're designed to transfer a lot of heat into a, into a small localized area. And... I don't know. I've just never had the best luck with them. I know there are people out there who do, but yeah, I'm I'm not a huge fan of them. But what you encountered here was the fact that you have poorly convecting wort with part of it being heated. Uh, I would suggest if you do want to use a heat wrap, uh, I don't think he said where he put the heat wrap, right? He said he wraps it around the corny. Right, but uh, not where on the corny. If you're going to wrap it around the corny, wrap it around down low because that way you'll heat up the wort down low. And that will cause it to rise and it, it cause the colder wort to sink and hopefully get at least some convection. But I still think you're going to run into issues where you're not going to have a lot of convection at, the, at those temperatures. Yeah, right. And again, if it's nine days in, it, it really isn't going to make much difference. Yep. All right. There we go. I think we've answered questions. Well, we, we can hope. Not. We can hope at least. So, yep. so I guess you got the quick tip this week. All right, so my quick tip for the week is actually going back to cider. Remember, I referenced this a little bit in the Food Forward event. Just kind of a stupid, quick, and easy way to make some cider for yourself. And remember, this isn't going to be great cider. Get a bottle of cider in, say, just you know, yield 64-ounce jug or a gallon jug, plastic, preferably. And take off the lid, pour out, you know, about a cup, maybe a pint of cider. Or, sorry, pour out a cup or maybe a pint of the juice. And then take your plastic lid... And melt a hole in the middle of it with a hot glue gun. Ta-da! Press that down, and it turns out it's almost the perfect width for a uh, an airlock. Take an airlock, shove it into that new hole that you've created in the cap. See if it's uh, airtight, if it's wiggling. If it wiggles at all, or you don't trust that it's not uh, airtight enough, just put a bead of hot glue around the, the airlock and pitch some yeast into that cider. A little bit of nutrient if you've got it. Close the lid back on. Voila! Cider. Let it go for a couple of weeks and then listen to the rest of the tips in the cider show to figure out how to make it taste even better. But there you go. Just a dumb and quick and easy way to experiment with some cider without having to invest a lot of time, energy, or equipment. Now, something other. Denny, I think you have something other because it has a personal connection to you. Yeah, the something other this week uh, is something that I'm kind of connected to and actually comes from my neck of the woods. We lost uh, David Ogden Stiers this week. He was 73, 75 years old, something like that. In case you don't know who David Ogden Stiers is, he played Charles Emerson Winchester III on MASH, and you have to be of a certain age probably to remember that. Did a lot of other stuff, including some of the stuff that I did with him. Uh, he did a lot of voiceovers for uh, Ken Burns and various PBS shows, and I was fortunate enough to have him choose my studio to work in to do those. So I got to spend many, many hours with David. Uh, interesting guy, some 
killer stories, let me tell you, from the uh, L.A. performing scene in the 60s and 70s. Uh, lots of comedy club stories, stuff like that. Uh, a, a real nice guy. Uh, a touch of Charles Emerson Winchester in him in real life. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was he was a great guy, a great actor, uh, and it's too bad he's gone. Uh, he spent the last few years of his life being the conductor of the symphony orchestra in Newport, Oregon, and running the Ernest Block Music Festival there. And I love the fact that you, in the interviews, some of the musicians, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, usually when we have like a celebrity conductor, you know, we're off doing our own thing because they don't know what they're doing. Like, you could really tell that he had a passion for it and understood exactly what he was doing and acted exactly like a conductor. Yeah. And, you know, everything David did was like that, you know, uh, at least from my connection with him. Uh, he was the consummate professional at all times. Watching him read voiceover was uh, really amazing, the way he could take direction and uh, reinterpret something in a fraction of a second. Yes. To Charles Emerson Winchester III, we salute you. That's right. And... Uh, I actually gave him a bottle of my homebrew once, but I don't think he ever drank it. I think he was afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> it was well. It was in my early extract days, so uh, hopefully uh, it was a good thing he didn't drink it. There you go. You might have had a different reputation than you have now. That's right. Even as even as bad as it is right now. All right, let's <laughs> get out of here. Worse. All right, we are out of here. Thank you all for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our adventures and writings by going to our website at experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, but mainly the AHA Beer Forum. Drew is on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel, among other things. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail with your questions, your answers, your heckling at 626-765-1AL. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.